I think the key for me was to work with someone who I respected, because um, that's also important. You're representing the person that you're working for, and so you want your views to align as much as possible. So that, that was important as well. So I wasn't looking for the perfect job, but I was looking for a job that was going to align with my values and where I knew that I was going to have a good working experience and have impact. Welcome to episode number one of season two of The Net Zero Life. I'm Nathan Svee, and I'm working to bring the world closer to net zero emissions by sharing lessons from climate-minded founders and leaders. First off, I want to say thank you. Thank you to all the listeners out there for enabling me and the Net Zero Life team to continue our learning and podcast journey. We've had such a blast spending our nights and weekends as creators, and we're looking forward to continuing to do even more. Please continue to send us your feedback and share words of encouragement. Tell your friends about the pod, tell them about our work, and of course, don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I just checked, and we're in the top results of both Apple Podcasts and Spotify when searching Net Zero, and all of that is thanks to you. Last season, we were lucky enough to hear from some of the hottest names in climate tech, many of whom are hiring. Part of our mission at the Net Zero Life is to help connect like-minded individuals so that together they can bring the world closer to net zero emissions, which is why I'm excited to announce Season 2 of the Net Zero Life is powered by Climate People. Climate People is an incredible recruiting agency working to connect mission-driven talent with companies decarbonizing the global economy. Whether you're a candidate looking to build software that helps sequester carbon or a founder looking to hire engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. Former Net Zero Life guests Heirloom Carbon already use Climate People for their talent acquisition. And if recruiting is your type of thing, Climate People is hiring impact-driven recruiters as well. You can find them at climatepeople.com or on Twitter and LinkedIn at Climate People. Climate People have helped us make season two of The Net Zero Life a reality without cutting corners. And with their help, we've achieved our vision to take this show higher and higher for each episode. We think they're a perfect partner for our show because if you're looking to combat climate change in your day-to-day work, they can do the same for you as they did for us. Through the podcast, I've kind of broken down sustainability into two frameworks and getting towards net zero emissions. And the two ways that we're going to do that is through efficiency and innovation. Today, we're launching season two with a subject that's critical to moving the world closer to net zero emissions through efficiency, and that's policy. And while policy is not as flashy as Silicon Valley and innovation, energy efficiency and government policy are critical to ensuring we decouple the modern quality of life from carbon. Joining me to talk about these topics is Naomi Baum. Naomi is the Chief Operating Officer of ACEEE, the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. Naomi is an expert on all things policy in Washington. She earned a Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science and French from Wellesley College and a Master's in Public Administration from the Kennedy School at Harvard University. Naomi has more than 20 years of legislative and oversight experience and has worked on a wide range of policy issues. Before joining ACEEE, she was the Executive Director of the Bipartisan Congressional Oversight Panel, and prior to that, she served as the Staff Director for the Senate Committee on Small Businesses and Entrepreneurship. You might remember ACEEE from Episode 5 of Season 1. Quinn Barnes of Illumia mentioned their work in reference to their state energy efficiency scorecards. And of course, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, it's really dope. Definitely check it out. Naomi and I wonder whether we'll ever think about purchasing homes like we do cars. In other words, with a miles per gallon equivalent. 
We also talk about changes she's made in her life, like purchasing Priuses and exclusively using the dishwasher, and lots more topics that we'll dive into throughout the rest of Season 2 on The Net Zero Life. With that, let's get to it. Welcome to Season 2 of The Net Zero Life, and please enjoy my conversation with Naomi Baum, COO of ACEEE. I thought we could start with your entrance into politics. Uh, you, prior to ACEEE, you were spent 18 years in the Senate. What got you interested in the Senate? Do you have any funny stories about kind of your first time meeting a high-ranking government official or like a story that helps that, that we can remember that they're human beings as well and not just these figureheads? It's a great question. And I actually spent more than 20 years working in the Senate. And I... I started working in the Senate because I was very interested in foreign policy. I, I grew up in a family where we talked about politics all the time. And my parents both um, survived World War II and definitely had this sense that what government does can really have an impact on your lives and that policy can matter. And so I always wanted to be involved in some way. And so I got a master's in public administration and came down to Washington and wanted to work on foreign policy. And at the time there was a hiring freeze at the State Department and it seemed like the best way to really learn and to be engaged was to go and work on Capitol Hill. And I was fortunate to get a job in the Senate and it was hard to get that first job, but once you get the first job, it's a lot easier. And I worked for some really wonderful senators over the years. And um, yes, they're just human beings, but um, sometimes you do get to be a fly on the wall to see all kinds of um, interesting things. I worked for, for Senator Herb Cole from Wisconsin, and he he definitely felt like he was, um, you know, the senators were not on a pedestal. And that was really important to him because I think sometimes power can go to people's heads. And, um, and I just remember thinking, you know, he has real understanding and perspective that, um, that we're all just human beings here, um, even though some people may have more power than others. So not sure if that was the kind of story you were looking for, but uh, that's one that comes to mind. <laughs> that's great. You mentioned that it's, it's tough to get the first job. How did you personally get your first job in the Senate? So when I came to Washington, I didn't really know anybody. I mean, I didn't have a master's degree. Um, and I spent an enormous amount of time just walking, walking the, the halls of Congress. Um, it was hard to find out where the openings were even. And so it was just this massive networking exercise in the days before email and the days before um, uh, you know, people being able, cell phones, no. So just a lot of walking the halls. And eventually um, I created a network through all of that networking. And somebody told me about a position that opened up and uh, it was actually one, a funny story. So I had applied for a position and I didn't get it. And I called someone and she said, oh, didn't you hear this person is leaving her job? And she got the position that I didn't get and I got her job. So, um, but it was, it was a huge networking exercise. And what I always tell people if they're interested in, in, in working in Capitol Hill, that if you're not, interested in that aspect of it and really going out there and networking and meeting people, it's probably not good for you. Did you feel like you were looking for your dream job or any job? I think, you know, a lot of young people think about uh, when they're applying for a role, like this is my one job. But what I try and tell them, I'm a young person too, like full disclosure, right? Uh, but what I tell them is that, listen, there's like a thousand people plus applying for this role. You need to think about it more of like a shotgun shell that you're applying for multiple jobs. Did you, did you see that the same way? So at the time, I think that I was really focused on finding a job in a, with a good member of Congress. In other words, that every 
congressional office is like a small business. It's its own uh, rhythms to it. It's run its own way. It's managed its own way. And some of them had good reputations and some didn't. Some members of Congress really had very poor reputations. And people would say to me, and when I would do all these informational meetings, well, don't go and work there. Um, and so I think the key for me was to work with someone who I respected, because um, that's also important. You're representing the person that you're working for. And so you want your views to align as much as possible. So that that was important as well. So um, I, I wasn't looking for the perfect job, but I was looking for a job that was going to align with my values and where I knew that I was going to have a good working experience and, and have impact. And then so from the Senate, you transitioned directly into ACEEE. You just mentioned your values. Was climate change or energy efficiency, was that part of the value statement? How did you end up there? So actually, I'm kind of late to really thinking about those issues or engaging in them. Um, And so I wanna put a plug in for people to, um, you know, it's never too late to do a career change or to do something different. Um, And for me, this was a real career change. I had been working um, on a wide variety of issues. I started out in foreign policy and defense and really had evolved into working on sort of broader appropriations issues, really uh, then worked on small business issues, economic issues, um, and, I've always loved working on different issues and learning new things. Um, Had done a little bit around energy efficiency and small businesses, but really had not worked on anything related to energy or climate. And I knew that I really enjoyed leading teams and helping maximize people, but I also enjoyed the substance. And so I was looking for a job where I could help run a nonprofit organization, but something that was um, very impact oriented. I had gotten frustrated over time The Senate had been very rewarding, but at some point there was just a lot of gridlock as you read about in the newspapers and it was hard to get things done. And your definition of success was not, am I having impact on people? It was, oh, am I getting my member to ask a question or am I, um, you know, am I moving things along a little bit? Um, Those opportunities to move things along in a big way are are much, um, they're much harder, those windows. So I wanted to go to a place where I would have impact and ACEEE was advertising for a COO. And I realized that I was not part of the energy efficiency community and there is a very um, rich energy efficiency community of people. But I said to them, you know, I'm passionate about um, having impact and I'm passionate about the environment, even if I haven't really worked in this space. Um, And so I think that I have something to offer and um, it's been a fabulous experience. And when you say late to the game, you started in 2012, Mm -hmm. which I think for a lot of people listening, myself included, you know, we're way later. Um, So I would say you're pretty early. So you went from the Senate into nonprofit most of the people that we interview on the show are for-profit companies. And one of the things I often ask them is, you know, if you're an environmental activist or like very pro-environment, why did you choose to pursue a for-profit venture? And so, you know, you mentioned having like a strong impact. Did you consider going into the for-profit realm? Not really. I mean, I think I've always had an interest in public service and always an interest in having impact. And I really, maybe for a nanosecond, um, but I really didn't, it wasn't something that really appealed to me. The idea that I was going to have to operate on a profit motive as opposed to what what was the best or right thing for society just didn't appeal to me. Before we get into ACEEE and its work, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about the, um, the life cycle of a policy. 
I'm so curious, like how a policy goes from idea inception to past and implementation. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. So, of course, you know, I'm not going to go through a civics, uh, you know, exercise here, but um, in terms of how a bill becomes law, there's there's plenty of things to read about that. But I think um, I think you have a combination of things. You know, you've got a good idea um, or something that needs to be addressed, a crisis for perhaps um, you've got champions, uh, people in Congress, for example, or people in the executive branch or the administration. We're talking at the federal level here. Right. Um, and you've so you've got political will um you may have support in, in the public and you may have some sort of agreement because there's political will um, that helps it's very difficult to get things done when there isn't some kind of agreement um, and so you're addressing a need um, and sometimes the only way to address that crisis or that need is through policy it's very difficult sometimes to get things done um, by just voluntarily asking people to do things. So you're looking at um, some sort of public good and um, the idea may have come also from the state or local level. And you know it, it's hard sometimes for new ideas to bubble up at the federal level. And so when, when you see an example of something ha- happening at the state or local level, it can really drive change at the federal level. And so maybe a little primer on ACEEE here. What do they do? What's their role in policy creation? So ACEEE was created um, about 40 years ago, and it was around the time of the OPEC oil embargo. And the idea was that um, there were a group of scientists, uh, academics, who were concerned that the U.S. was too dependent on foreign oil and needed to become more energy independent, but also more energy efficient, so that we really needed to be using less energy. And they felt that there wasn't enough leadership happening at the federal level. Um, And so the idea was to do data-driven work, research that would help lead to policy change. And I think that's an important component, having information, right? Having good data um, so that you can enact policies that are are based on um, sound information. And so ACEEE has been in this space for all that time, putting out sort of the best energy efficiency data um, and working with policymakers and not just at the federal level, at the state level, local level now, um, working with regulators. Um, and the idea is that we're, people can trust us, they can trust our information, um, and we're also there to provide technical assistance. We like to highlight best practices uh, and share where things, different things that are happening around the country. Um, the other thing that we do which does seem to really be effective is we put out these scorecards and competition also has this way of leading to policy change. Um, And so we have these state scorecards and we rate states based on how energy efficient they are. And we look at different suites of policies. We look at leadership at the state in the state government. We look at buildings, transportation, et cetera. And, um, and, States care, state leaderships care, governors care, state energy offices care. Um, Sometimes they're interested not so much in how they compare to California or Massachusetts. Um, They're interested in how they maybe compare to other states in their region. And nobody wants to be number 50. Um, You know, I have this great story, which I think really demonstrates uh, the value of this work. Um, The governor of Mississippi held an energy summit 
uh, in the state the day after one of our scorecards came out. And he put up on a big screen the map showing that Mississippi ranked the bottom of all the states. And he said, we're going to do better. Um, and the next, next time around, Mississippi was one of the most improved states. Um, and so we're really interested in getting information out to people so that um, they can understand how they can enact policies that will drive more energy efficiency. And efficiency is a funny thing. Uh, I'm trying to think of like the radio appropriate words to say it, but people love talking about innovation, right? Innovation, innovation, innovation. Uh, but one of the things we talk about in our household is, uh, and I think this is a good metaphor, simile, is that like saving rent is one of the best dollar for dollar ways you can you can save money, right? Because every dollar you don't spend on rent goes back into into your uh, you know your wallet. And I think energy efficiency is kind of the same way. Um, you know, like innovating and creating uh, a new technology is fantastic, but every pound of carbon you use less. Uh, is first of all, oftentimes it's like better for your budget, right? And it's also literally zero carbon. Do you feel that you are fighting to deliver that narrative constantly or do people get it? I think there are a lot of people who don't really understand what energy efficiency is. Um, and when, you know, when I say to people sometimes, oh, you know, I work in the energy efficiency field, they say, oh yes, I just put solar panels on my roof. And, you know, that's, that's great. <laughs> and, you know, we definitely see a role for efficiency working with renewables, of course, um, but that's not exactly what it is. Um, energy efficiency is not something that you can see. So that's what makes it harder. You know, if you're sealing the envelope of, your, of a building, you're putting in better insulation, or you're making a product more efficient, you don't really see it. Um, so that does make it a little challenging. And, you know, one of the goals from the very beginning of, of ACEEE was that we should be able to do what we're currently doing, but with less energy. Um, and so, and we've achieved that. I mean, if you look at economic growth and you see economic growth and what energy use should have been, um, it's not what it should have been, it's much less. Um, and so that, that gap um, is, is really very compelling. Yeah, and I'll direct everyone to the uh, Energy Efficiency Impact Report, which we'll link into the show notes that uh, that you put together with a few other groups. Uh, just some data out of that report that I want to share. Uh, so the U.S. is 4% of the worldwide population, but we produce 24% of global GDP, which kind of blew my mind and really helped me appreciate where we stand in terms of both like the energy consumption and our opportunity, um, because we're 15% of worldwide energy demand, right? And we produce 15%, 14.7% of worldwide carbon dioxide emissions, so both of these numbers are 2018. Would you say that the U.S. is a leader or a laggard in terms of energy efficiency policy? You know, we do this international scorecard, and one of the reasons that we do it is to put the U.S. in some sort of context. Um, and it's, it's challenging. We're a large country. Um, we have, you know, we have vast road system, you know, and there are a lot of places where there isn't transit. Um, and so we don't always compare well to smaller European countries. We're, we're somewhere in the middle, um, I think is the best way to put it. And we lead in certain areas, um, but it, it is challenging because of much of what we need to do is not happening at the federal level. And so it has to happen across 50 states. It has to happen across many cities. Um, and so that, that does make it more challenging. There's definitely more work to do, um, but there's probably more work for every country to do. What sectors are, are you most focused on now in terms of making them more efficient? So last year, we issued a call to action to, to basically all of our stakeholders. And we said, you know, we really need to be doing, um, to be really scaling up energy efficiency in a big way if we're going to 
um, address climate change. And we said, you know, we need to focus on the transportation sector, industrial sector, buildings, the power sector, and we need to do all of this work in a way that leads to equitable outcomes. And so that's really the focus of our work right now. And of course, we're doing that, um, thinking about behavior change, thinking about innovation, thinking about technology, thinking about the policies that need to be put in place, doing research on the questions that are of interest to stakeholders, to businesses that make energy efficient products, to utilities, to policymakers, um, and, and trying to get that data out there to help support the policies that need to happen. Uh, you mentioned transportation. Right away, I think miles per gallon, right? Which is like, I guess, an efficiency metric. Let me know if you feel differently. But when I think about, and I'm also not a homeowner, so maybe that's why, but I don't think about like, what's the equivalent for, uh, you mentioned power or buildings. Do those exist? And are they just not lodged in the like kind of everyday consumer mind? So I think that they're evolving, building performance standards, um, home energy scores. Um, there's the HERS score, which exists for uh, new construction. And, um, you know, but it's, you know, we're doing research right now on, you know, will people make different decisions if they're buying a home and they see the energy consumption of that home? Um, I mean, we know from, from retail studies, you know, from studies of, by the retail industry, that there are these transition points where people will change their behavior and do things differently, or you or you have opportunities to get people to do things. Um, and certainly, you know, buying doing a major purchase like buying a home um, is an opportunity to think about your your carbon footprint and to think about your energy efficiency. Similarly, if you're doing a renovation, right? If you're that's an opportunity to do energy efficiency retrofits. Um, and so, thinking about those changes, or if you're buying a new appliance, a major appliance. Um, those, those are all times. Now, appliances have those kinds of, uh, they have energy star labels, which tell you about the energy consumption of the product as compared to others in its class. Um, and so that's really sort of that first line that ACEEE started working on, which were the appliances, the things in your home, getting, getting to market transformation where you had um, all the appliances in a particular class, you know, pushing towards that most efficient appliance um, and comparing them. And so appliances were sort of the first thing. And now we're thinking bigger about the whole system, right? We have these smart um, smart uh, thermostats and we have ability to uh, maybe have smart controls for a lot of the house. Um, and so thinking about the house as a system, thinking about houses in the neighborhood as a system, um, land use planning, all of those things come into play. When ACEEE looks at the landscape, are they more focused on the residential consumer or the kind of commercial or industrial? So that's a great question because we're not really focused on consumers. Um, our work is really for policymakers, right? And for, for industry and for people who are um, people. I mean, we do have some, and I hope we get a chance to talk a little bit about what we have that can help be helpful to consumers. But our work is really for the energy sector um, and for people who are interested in making energy policy and for advocates who are working in that area. Yeah. Well, let's talk about like what are the things that uh, the kind of lessons you've learned through your work that everyday consumers can take into their home? So I've certainly learned about 
practices that I don't think I that would have occurred to me. Um, you know, it's more efficient to run your dishes in the dishwasher than it is to wash them in the sink. Hmm. Um, you're going to use a lot less water, a lot less energy, um, assuming the dishwasher is full and you haven't rinsed your dishes, you know, things like that. There are definitely a lot of ways to save energy um, and making sure your home is well insulated is not something that, that is obvious to people, um, but it can make a huge difference in terms of your carbon footprint. Um, and there aren't, you know, there aren't, you don't always think, oh, well, we're going to insulate our home next year. But if you're doing something else, it's a good opportunity to do that. Um, certainly thinking about where you live and whether you have access to transit or whether you have to drive wherever you go, um, you know, that's, that's has a huge impact on your carbon footprint. Um, and how we density, how we develop our cities. Um, and if you choose to live in a place that's more dense, uh, you know, you're, you're making a contribution. So just thinking about all those things. But the one thing that, I, that I've also found is that we're, we're trying to get people to change their behavior at some level. And behavior change is really interesting. And I think about it all the time, not just in terms of energy efficiency, but I think about it just in terms of running a nonprofit. Um, you know, how do you get people to change the way they do things or how do you get teams to do things differently? And so um, I find that aspect of the work to be really fascinating. Naomi and I got to talking about specific ACEEE resources for living a more net zero life. And she had two helpful links for everyday consumers. I'll let Naomi take it from here. So if you're looking to become more energy efficient and to be more um, conscious of your carbon emissions, while we're not really a consumer facing organization, we do have two websites that are really just for consumers. And one of them is called smarterhouse.org. And it really helps you think through decisions that you might want to make about your home. Um, particularly, I think it's, it's one for a long time, Smarter House was connected to our regular website. And the water heating page got more hits than anything else on our website because people, usually you're in a panic when your water heater breaks. And so best to go and look at it before your water heater breaks so you understand what your options are in terms of becoming more efficient. And then the other website that we have is greenercars.org. And that's looking at um, what are the most efficient vehicles out there in by class. So if you need to buy a minivan, you can look at what is the most efficient minivan. And there's also a calculator so that if you're thinking of buying an electric vehicle, but you don't know what, um, how, um, you know, how carbon intensive is your particular electricity grid, you can actually do a calculation and see whether it makes sense for where you're living, um, whether you should buy an electric vehicle. Super helpful tips from Naomi. We'll have links to all the resources in the show notes. Now back to the interview. If the U.S. adopted all of the efficiency policies uh, that were, were possible, how far would it get us to a goal of being net zero carbon by 2050? So the IEA, um, the International Energy Agency, just came out with a report. And they talk about the role of efficiency to get us to net zero. And ACEEE had a report last year where we said, you know, we'll be able to meet our carbon goals, Paris carbon goals, 50%. Um, energy efficiency will get us 50% of the the way there. Um, and according to the IAEA scenario, by 2050, almost half of the emissions reductions will have to come from technologies that are now um, only at demonstration or prototype phase. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the IAEA. What was most, at least where I saw it in the news, kind of groundbreaking, curious to hear your thoughts, is that they talked about the need to stop 
and and this is maybe kind of a little bit out of left field, but the need to stop drilling for new oil and gas. What is, I guess I'm curious, like what is your relationship with these other um, either government or NGOs, organizations, and how, are, how often are you working together on reports versus independent work? I would say that we, we tend to do most of our reports on our own, um, but we definitely want to have input from others in the energy sector. And so many, most of our report, all of our reports, actually, not so much our white papers, which come out on a faster timeline, but our reports go through an external review process. um, And we're interested in getting different perspectives from different players in in industry, in academia, in the policy sector. um, And so really trying to get lots of multiple perspectives. And from your lens, are there good people and bad people in this space that you mentioned? Uh, maybe, I don't know if it was energy uh, sector or utility. Um, are they totally on board or they're like kind of like, mm, whatever, we're kind of like happy with the status quo? I don't think anybody's happy with the status quo per se, um, or at least I don't think anybody's going to say they're happy with the status quo. Um, but I think that some are ready to make more transformative change than others. And I think also some are in, a, in an environment where Maybe regulators are pushing them to do more, um, and maybe their constituents or their territory people who live in their territories want them to do more. And so I think it's about the environment. Um, it's a com- I think it's complex. I don't think it's so simple that there are good actors and bad actors. I think it's really more um, understanding sort of all the various inputs that would lead different stakeholders to make different decisions. So we work with everybody. I mean, that's really our goal. And um, we, we work all around the country and we work with utilities and, um, you know, we share best practices with them and we want to help understand the environment that they're in. Um, we want to understand where policymakers are and we want to give them the tools to move forward. And you brought up equity. How much of uh, the, the individuals and the organizations that you're working with are thinking about equity in the same way? I think it's really growing. It's huge. Um, you know, we really see utilities, you know, wanting to serve all communities, wanting to make sure that energy efficiency programs um, are benefiting low-income communities, that they're benefiting all the communities that they serve. Um, We're also seeing there's a growth in jobs in the energy efficiency sector. We want those jobs to be going to people who live in the communities that are disproportionately impacted by climate change. Um, And so we're really, just as the rest of the country is going through a transformation, we're definitely seeing that in um, in the energy efficiency sector as well, a greater recognition um, that we need to do our work in a more equitable and just way um, so that we don't race through to solutions that are going to uh, lock in place inequities that have existed for a long time. We want our solutions to really lead to more equitable outcomes. Do you tackle the fact uh, that, you know, a lot of times these efficiency opportunities like solar, uh, right, kind of has like kind of like high upfront cost and then you get the payback over a period of time? Is that stuff that ACEEE works on? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we're definitely interested in how to make um, how to make energy efficiency more accessible to um, all kinds of communities. I mean, the benefits are huge. If you can lower energy costs. I mean, the energy, we do a lot of work on energy burdens and disproportionate energy burdens to, um, to low income and communities of color and wanting to make sure that the benefits of efficiency, lowering energy bills um, accrue to those communities. Is there an, 
I'm trying, I think like the food desert, right, where there's like a lack of um, healthy food in certain communities, is there the inverse, to, uh, you know, at risk for sounding very naive, although it's as I am, uh, in the sense that is there, is the cost of energy oftentimes higher in disproportionately low income communities? Yes, absolutely. Or if you want to look at it another way, the, their share of energy, the share of their family budget on energy is, is disproportionately high, the proportion. Um, um, but yes, energy costs can be higher. Why, what, can, can you explain more? Like why, what, hap- what leads to that, to that scenario? You know, I really want to direct you to some of our energy burdens work and maybe we could share in, in the, the show notes uh, some of the work that we've done in this area because I think it's, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Um, Separately, I want to talk about your work in efficiency buildings and kind of highlight some of the opportunities there. Like I said, we talked about cars, and I think there's this strong narrative behind, you know, uh, we're going to go electric, hybrids were like the greatest thing on earth for a couple of years. What is the future for buildings going to look like? So I think that um, there's a lot happening in the building space, and I've, I've been focusing on it myself for the last couple of months, and I do think it's really interesting. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, you know, we we know that by 2050, I think it's something like 67% of the buildings um, that will will be standing are, are going to be older buildings. And so we really have to think think about how we're going to retrofit existing buildings and how we're going to do that. And uh, our buildings are not centralized, and and how we oversee our buildings. Um, building codes are not, you know, if somebody's uh, making changes to their buildings, it's not happening at the federal level. It's not happening. Uh, um, Congress doesn't have any impact on that. And so really thinking about how to drive more investment in existing building retrofits is something that we're thinking about. Also, building codes are a huge trans, uh, transformative opportunity um, and making sure that the model codes, which are then adopted by states and localities, um, are the, the most efficient that they can be. And so that's something that we work on. Um, and getting that transparency out there in terms of building performance standards and making clear to people when they are um, purchasing a building or living in a building, understanding what their energy consumption is, that's huge. But for a lot of people, and you know, we talked about this a little bit, and you asked me before, you know, what's one of the things that I've learned? And I've learned also that people don't always do efficiency because they're um, motivated by carbon, um, people do efficiency for comfort. People do efficiency to lower costs. People do efficiency um, it may improve health. Um, we definitely see reductions in asthma when uh, homes are weatherized and things like that. And so um, there, there are a lot of non-energy benefits um, that might motivate people to do efficiency and particularly around buildings. Um, and so that's something that we're really interested in that nexus between health and buildings. Has the narrative shifted at all? We did an episode with Illumia, who's a efficiency as a service company. And one of the things we talked about, I mean, they are a for-profit venture. And when they're going to companies to say, hey, because they replaced their incandescent light bulbs, with more efficient light bulbs, the narrative is not, we are going to make you greener. The narrative is we're going to save you money. For In your work as well, has the narrative shifted at all to be more environmental and less about cost savings? Or it's kind of stayed the same for the time you've been there? I would say that it is shifting and there's definitely more of, and I would say until very recently, it was all about the cost savings, right? And then maybe some of these non-energy benefits. Hmm. Um, But as more and more um, states and localities um, and now the federal government are talking about climate goals, 
um, there's definitely been a shift to talking about from talking about strictly talking about energy savings to talking about carbon savings. Um, and so that's while we were always motivated. So, so I talked about the founding of ACEEE and how we were, you know, originally motivated by making um, the country more efficient so that we could be energy independent. Over time, we did become more energy independent, but what we realized is that energy efficiency was a hugely important tool in terms of climate change mitigation. However, there were a lot of people who didn't necessarily see it that way. And so we were working, um, we were highly motivated by the, um, the ben benefits to um, helping address climate change, but we weren't necessarily talking about it um, as much, um, I would say. And so we've definitely been much more explicit in talking about uh, the climate change benefits of becoming more efficient and enacting efficiency policies. And um, I think that's also partly in response to this, um, to this perception that maybe, well, if we just put up solar panels everywhere, that that would solve the problem. And it's not enough. It's not because you, you, don't, you, you don't want to build the grid to be so massively large. I mean, you, can, you, want, to put, you want to do efficiency first and then you put the renewables up. Um, or at the same time. What do you mean by you don't want to do? Can you just say like a little bit more, peel back the layer in terms of building like a large grid? Sure. So um, think about what happened in Texas um, in terms of this winter peak. Um, you know, they had this unusual cold and, and they talked about some of the technology and ways that, um, you know, the delivery of, um, of energy um, during the, the crisis there, uh, you know, th there were some technical challenges in terms of what was happening. But if they hadn't needed as much energy at that moment, um, they wouldn't have had the kind of crisis that they had. If they had had um, more controls in terms of, you know, for example, if they'd had um, heat pumps that had been responsive to the grid, you know, grid, um, grid interactive uh, um, heating and cooling and, you know, the kinds of technologies that people are talking about now, if there had been a way to, to, to modulate that a little bit more, um, and if you hadn't if you if you had more efficient buildings, I mean, they hadn't really thought about cold there in the way that they may need to now um, because of climate change. Um, and so, if you'd had better steel buildings, you wouldn't have needed as much heat. Um, so, all of that would have helped mitigate what happened. Is there anything that people can do, like everyday consumers or constituents of a county or state or, or local municipality, can do to get their utilities to think about these things or to like affect building colds or? codes or we have to rely kind of on the, our leaders to do it? Absolutely. I think people should definitely get involved at the local level, at the state level. Um, they should definitely be um, looking for, if, if, if those kinds of things are not happening in their community, they should look in other communities and bring those models back to their community. This is definitely an opportunity for people to get engaged um, and to push for those kinds of things. And you mentioned model codes earlier. I'm not familiar with that. So... There are two different kinds of model codes. There are model codes for commercial buildings and model codes for uh, residential buildings. And these, it's, it's the whole development of how these codes are developed is a little bit complex. And um, we can definitely provide some information uh, in, uh, in the show notes, but these codes are developed. Um, there's the International Code Council they developed something called the Model Energy Code, which was later renamed the International Energy Conservation Code or the IECC. And most states use a version of the IECC as the basis for their residential building codes. Commercial buildings are based on something called ASHRAE 90.1, 
Um, these are standards. ASHRAE used to stand for the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers, and now it just stands for <laughs> ASHRAE. Um, and um, this is also a code that is set for a model code. And when I say a model code, what I mean is that, that it has to be adopted um, by cities and states. And so each, every few years, there's a new version of the code. And, um, you know, the goal is that these codes improve energy efficiency. I think the most recent one improved it by 10% as compared to the previous one. Um, and so, and the idea is that we want to see states and localities adopting the most efficient codes. So some states actually already have in law that when a new model code is, is uh, developed, um, that within 12 to 18 months, you know, they're going to, to work to put that code in place. Um, and there are other states that are more behind and other localities that are more behind in terms of their building codes. Um, and so these model codes set the bar um, and there, there's a lot involved, as I said, in developing the codes, but that, that is how building codes are set. Does ACEEE get involved with the development of the codes or the adoption? Yes, yes. And we actually have a seat on ASHRAE 90.1. And we, um, there are, um, you know, committee meetings and uh, gatherings and discussions and proposals and, um, and we are involved. Can I ask, does Washington State adopt the, uh, do you know, if, you, you don't have, no big deal if not, but do you know if Washington State adopts the model codes right when they come out? I mean, tell you where Washington State is. You can look at our state energy um, efficiency scorecard and you can see where all states are um, in terms of their, um, you can look in the buildings chapter of the, of the scorecard and you can see, you can look up your state. Um, we also have a city scorecard and you can look up your city um, and see where they are in terms of compliance. And you can see in those scorecard reports, you can actually go and see the states and the cities that are doing the best and look at some of those best practice policies um, and go and reach out to your local legislator and um, and point to those policies. Awesome. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. Uh, and I'm very excited to see where Seattle and Washington State fall. And, and I should just say in our last scorecard that was in 2020, Washington State on buildings energy efficiency was ranked third in the country. Let's go. <laughs> um, I've had such a great time. Thank you so much. I have a few quick fire, hopefully fun questions for you. Since joining a climate focused organization, do you feel pressure to be a representation of like a, the, you know, the bastion of all things climate change or, um, and no pressure, uh, and or like, are there any things that you've done differently? You mentioned the dishwasher. There are a lot of things that I've done differently. You know, uh, I read a report on um, um, miscellaneous energy uses and how keeping everything plugged in, um, you know, was, you know, was this huge miscellaneous energy use. And so we went around and we unplugged everything that we're not using. Um, bought a Prius, of course. Um, in fact, we have two. <laughs> uh, so, uh, cause there were a lot, you know, for our family and, um, definitely much more conscious of travel and flying and, um, much more conscious of, of how we use energy. Do you have a favorite climate, um, a climate journalist or news source or any other media? I mean, on a daily basis, I'm usually reading um, Politico's Morning Energy, and um, I read um, E&E puts out um, a bunch of newsletters that we subscribe to at ACEEE, and I read I read a lot of those. So it's sort of a um, a conglomeration of information of stories across the day. Um, 
I've started listening to your podcast. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I heard a rumor that you knew kind of the the energy gang people, like Jigger Shaw, way back when before they were before they were famous. Is that uh, is that true? I don't know. I think I knew them when they were famous. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely definitely have listened to them for sure. And Jigger Shaw actually is now working in the Biden administration. He's heading up the Energy Loan Program Office in the Department of Energy, and he actually just spoke at. Um, ACEEE had a, a conference on um, financing, energy efficiency financing, and that's that's actually something that we haven't talked about. ACEEE, um, you know, for over over the forty years, we've been a big convener, bringing people together, um, having conferences, and it's really interesting to think about what will conferences look like post the pandemic, and as people become more conscious of their carbon emissions and flying, and you know, do people want to fly to get together? Um, so really interesting to see how that will evolve yeah i think about you know there's a special piece of being together although you know the fact that we're doing this podcast over zoom is so special too uh two questions to before we go one how should people get in touch and is ac hiring what do you if they are what kind of skill sets are you looking for sure actually i think we just posted a job today on industrial efficiency um you know, we hire a broad range of people looking for people who are mission driven, um, passionate about uh, about this work, and who have anywhere from you know very technical skills, uh, engineers, to people who are interested in policy and maybe don't have those technical skills. So it's a pretty broad range. And we post an ACEEE jobs on our website, ACEEE.org, but we also post jobs um, for other energy, across the energy efficiency community. Fantastic. Uh, and if people want to get in touch with you, is there, should they reach out via LinkedIn? Um, nbaum at ACEEE.org. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks again to Naomi for joining us today. You can connect with Naomi on LinkedIn or email at nbaum at acee.org. That's B-A-U-M, Baum. Make sure to follow our brand new TikTok to see highlight clips from our interview. We also post on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn if that's your kind of thing. You can find us on all these social medias by following at The Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at The Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is no way reflective of my employer. It's also not an investment advice or anything else that can get me sued. This episode was produced by Tani Lovett, original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life. <laughs>